0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au What we want to do in this series, which is going to stretch out for some weeks, months, possibly a couple of years, is actually to build in you a better vision and understanding of who Jesus is. We want to grow our vision, we need a better vision, we need a fuller vision, we need to see the splendour and glory of our Lord Jesus in greater and better ways, and I'll tell you why, it's because I think that when sometimes our problem is not that we haven't heard enough, although faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it's actually we need to see Jesus, we need to see him with the eyes of our heart, and I'm convinced that when you see him in his glory and his splendour and his majesty, and then you understand what he has done for you, you'll actually change. You won't have to ask what to do, because you'll know, and you'll naturally just start walking more in the fullness of his intent and purpose for your life. So I want to continue that this morning by looking at the Gospel of Mark. We're in the introduction, which is verses 1 to 15, and my task or assignment was to get you through verses 9 to 15. (laughs) Wow. How long is it going to take? Well, if I did the whole thing, we'd be here till dinner, which means I'll be standing alone and you'll be all disappeared and I'll be talking to myself. So um, just the nature of the content of what Mark's doing here, I'm really only going to focus on two verses. And the reason I'm doing that is because they talk a lot into about the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. Um, Just a a word of warning or I guess a heads up for those who are intensely practical and they like application to walk away with sad to say, I'm probably going to disappoint you this morning, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of application per se, but I would encourage you if there's anything, that the role here this morning is for you to behold the Lord, that's it, it's not a three-step plan or something to do, but just behold the Lord. So I hope that's good, with that we're going to turn to scripture, um, I'm going to read the whole introduction, because it's good to hear it in context. And then we'll get into the text itself. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhones, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger from before you my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he went up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, One of the things you'll notice about this gospel is that Mark actually bookends it, so to speak, with good news. Verse 1, beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And then right at the end of that verse 15, Jesus comes, or 14, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, which is good news. And it's interesting that you're going to discover this morning that actually so much of Mark is steeped in Isaiah. Isaiah. David's preaching on the introduction has been excellent, so if you haven't listened to it, go and listen to it. But you'll notice that um, we have the trajectory of the whole story of the Bible here. And a lot of what we're talking about here in Mark, in Jesus' day, actually is pointing way back into Exodus, into the prophets who existed around here in Isaiah, Isaiah is placed here because a lot of what he's talking about in the second half of his book is about the exile and coming out of Babylonian captivity. And so Mark is actually pulled from that, and we see straight up a reference from Isaiah chapter 40, which says, Go up to a high mountain, O herald of good news to Zion. Lift up your voice with strength, O herald of good news to Jerusalem. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God who comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense goes before him. Isaiah says further on how beautiful upon the feet on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings goodness, good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is Isaiah actually proclaiming good news. It's the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is synonymous with Zion. If you hear that word Zion and Jerusalem, they're essentially synonymous terms. And that the God of Israel's arrival is imminent, and with that, the manifest kingdom. So it's well known that the return of Yahweh would be preceded by a forerunner, whom would prepare the way. And here we have in these opening verses, in verses 2 to to 8, actually identifying John the Baptist as that very one. He comes out proclaiming a baptism of repentance and speaks of a mighty one who would come after him. Now Isaiah in his day was anticipating this return of Yahweh to redeem and restore Israel and finally to reestablish his reign on earth. And so here we have John the Baptist, the forerunner, preparing the way. And so you can sense the anticipation that God's return must be imminent. So here we come to verse 9, and it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the person who's been prominent in those first four verses shifts to the background, and Jesus comes to the fore as a, the person of primary importance. But what's fascinating is that this one who comes forth that Isaiah was prophesying about that would be God's return, God's rule, God's reign, God's redemption plan, God coming to restore all things is actually paralleled with the coming. Jesus Jesus is not somehow just a representative of Yahweh. He is Yahweh. (laughs) So who is this Jesus? who comes in a form of a man. And yet the heavens are torn open and proclaim, Here comes God. So I'm going to turn now to Mark 9. Uh, 1 verses 9 to 11, to unpack a little further what happens in this moment of Jesus' baptism. So the verses read this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, you'll notice in your Bible that uh, they give you a subheading and it talks about the baptism of Jesus. But the interesting thing about this is the first thing that I notice is that actually it doesn't tell us much about his baptism at all. What it's actually concentrating is what happens when Jesus comes up out of the waters. And that's contained in verses 10 and 11. And we're going to have a little uh, closer look at the three events that take place. There's a threefold revelation in just these two verses. When he comes out of the water, we have the tearing or the rending of the heavens. We have the descent of the Holy Spirit. And we have the voice coming out of heaven. So we're going to explore that in a moment. But uh, I felt at this point I just needed to clarify uh, um, something for you. Because I found myself explaining this to someone earlier in the week. And there's a lot of New Testament scripture that's often talked of, uh, particularly when it comes to the Gospel of Mark, that speaks to illusions in the Old Testament. So, I'm explaining this to someone, and I can tell, you know, when you know someone's not getting what you're saying, they're looking at me a little confused. So, I stopped and I asked them about it, and it turns out that what was coming out of my mouth was something more like illusions. (laughs) So, they thought I was thinking the Gospel Mark is full of these deceptive things and wrongful ideas, (laughs) and I was meaning, no, 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 he's pointed to Text and he's making implicit reference to scriptures in the Old Testament. So I thought I'd better put that out front because I'll probably end up using that word allusion or alluding to quite a bit. And what I'm really trying to tell you is that one of the fascinating things about the writers of the New Testament is that they're steeped in the Old Testament. So they just expect their hearers to understand and know when they talk about the prophet Isaiah Malachi and they refer to a verse and it may be only five words quite often, they're actually referring to a broader context. We saw that with the verses 2 and 3 that David preached about in his introduction, that there's a reference that comes from Malachi, there's a reference that talks about Exodus, and, of course, the prophet Isaiah. And he's not just saying these words that I'm telling you are now fulfilled. He's actually pointing to something far greater. He's pointing to the Exodus story. So you can see right on the far left, where Egypt is, when God brings them out of Egypt, that's a formative nation-shaping event. It's how they define themselves. So when they refer to it, it's not just stating something that happened, it's talking about their identity, where it comes from, and the way, more importantly, in which they understood who God was and how God would act and be for them. So I just thought I'd better clarify that. up. So if I ever use the word illusion and you're wondering if I am getting it wrong, well, probably. <laughs> but just bear that difference in mind because it happens quite a bit. So often we read in Scripture these little verses and we don't quite get it, but if we look into it, we find that actually there's a greater context coming right out of the Old Testament Scripture. So the first of these revelations is the rending of the heavens. Now this is actually a reference from Isaiah 64, verse 1. It's Isaiah crying out to God, Oh, would you rend the heavens, because... What's happening in this process in the broader context of Isaiah later Isaiah 64 is that God is pleading with God because Zion has become a wilderness. It's become barren. Jerusalem is a desolation. And he's crying out, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? In fact, this sits in a broader context of Isaiah, talking about the final restoration of Israel and along with it a new heaven. And a new earth. So, this is commonly referred to this new heavens and a new earth as the establishment of God's kingdom in the last days or the end times. So, the rending of the heavens, this reference to Isaiah, and all of a sudden it starts unpacking something God opening the heavens. Now, what's interesting is that the reference to Malachi earlier tells us something about what's been happening. God has been silent for 400 years. And for the Jewish people, for God to be silent was effectively for heavens to be shut up, closed. So you can see in this one reference, this prophetic revelation of the rending of the heavens is incredibly significant for at least two reasons. One, God is opening up the heavens. He's speaking again, but it's not just speaking. He's acting. He's moving. He's coming again back to earth. He has intent and purpose. The Lord never says anything without intending to see its fulfillment come through. The second thing it does is it identifies or it points to the supernatural dimension of the truth that is about to be pronounced over this man, Jesus. So that's the first revelation. The second one is the descent of of the Spirit. Now, This again, we're going to be in Isaiah, we may as well be preaching out of Isaiah, because (laughs) all my scriptures pretty much come from there. But there's three. There's one in chapter 11, one in chapter uh, 42, and one in chapter 61. Now the first one speaks of a root that comes forth out of the stump of Jesse. For those of you who don't know, Jesse is the father of David. He's the father of King David. And this is talking about an ancestry, a lineage. So out of out of the the offspring of Jesse, out of the offspring coming through David, will come forth a root, and this branch from its roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There it is. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The second reference comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1, which says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the doors of the prison and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, some of you will be familiar with that passage because it's actually in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus coming out of the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit and with power, goes to Nazareth, his birthplace, goes to the synagogue, and on the readings he goes up, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, he speaks this out, and then he sits, and he says, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. Just hear what this says about the one on whom the Spirit rests, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, the one who will bring forth justice to the nations, and the wonders of someone who comes that will actually bring liberty, freedom, binding of the brokenhearted. This is all pointing toward Jesus, the one on whom the Spirit descends. Jewish tradition recognized that the Messiah would possess the Spirit of God in this way, and and the second revelatory event of this Spirit descending on Jesus confirms His divine presence, the power on His life, and the power for His mission. So we've had the rending of the heavens, we've had the Spirit coming down, now we come to this third revelation, which is the voice from heaven, which in Mark 1.11 says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with You I'm well pleased. And Once again, surprise, surprise, this has Old Testament messianic themes. It's the commissioning of Jesus to undertake his God-given role, and more importantly, identifying him as the Son of God. So, although we're not told to whom this voice belongs, the fact that it comes from heaven makes it abundantly clear that this is the voice of God. So, whatever we might conclude about what the words will say about Jesus' ministry... One thing we can be absolutely certain of is that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. So we have this actually referred to in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It speaks about God appointing one who will rule over the nations. And there's this one line in there in verse 7 which says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. So it appoints one to rule over the nations, and this title of son is linked to the title of kingship. Hence, it's a royal title. And this also then leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, if you read in your Bibles, there's a, a history that goes on coming out of ex- Exodus. Deuteronomy is the last book to begin coming out of the wilderness, and then in their journey toward into the promised land, it starts with Joshua and moves through 1st and 2nd Kings. You've got 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And that basically tells you the whole story of Israel uh, up to the point. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last line in Chronicles. Um, I think it's either with Malachi or it's uh, with Exodus. That's funny. Just had a mind blank. So in this trajectory, the importance of 2 Samuel 7, it's like a pinnacle. It's like the climax of this whole narrative. And the reason that's the case is because in that is a, a promise to David about a dynasty. Now, David the king has only just become king. He's united the tribes of Israel. He's captured Jerusalem and made that its capital. He's retrieved the Ark of the Covenant, which was elsewhere, and he's managed to bring it into Jerusalem, not without some trouble, mind you, but that's a conversation for another time. And then we find him himself sitting in his house of cedar. Cedar is a high-quality wood product. <laughs> and he's looking out and he's seeing God sitting in this temple. So the Ark of the Covenant was in a, in, in a, a tabernacle, a tent, and he thinks to himself, I want to build a house for God. Well, it turns out God has other ideas and all of a sudden you discover he has some pretty big ideas. So he comes to David and through the prophet Nathan and he says, are you going to build me a house? In all these years, I've been wandering around the wilderness and leading you through these places. Have I ever asked for a house? He says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. And it sounds like a rebuke, but then God does this amazing play on words with that word house. He says, I will make you a house. He's not talking about a building. He's actually talking about a dynasty. And there's a couple of amazing things that come out of this passage. Firstly, David has promised that one of his offspring will rule on his throne forever. And the second thing is, God says to that one, I will be like a father to him. <laughs> and he will be like a son. So this term son, God of son, has royal significance, it has ruling significance, it has intimacy. But wait, there's more. (laughs) It's not just saying you are my son, he says you are my beloved son. And we see that in Isaiah 42 again, verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The beloved is the one in whom God delights. And it's also in this passage that we see the link between the one whom he delights and the servant. Jesus is also identified as the servant of the Lord. So there we have three events, three revelations, the tearing of the heavens, uh, opening up, the ascending of the Spirit, the voice coming out from heaven. And as you start to unpack that and you look at the allusions that it makes to the Old Testament, you start unfolding that He is God's Son. He's the Beloved. He's the King. He's the Servant of the Lord. In short, the one spoken about through the Old Testament whom God would appoint to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I unfortunately don't have time to go and unpack the wilderness or even to talk about his proclamation of the kingdom drawing near in verses 14 and 15. But I guess when you hear all this, you're left with that question, which you will hear throughout your, uh, if you're in the connect groups and you're going through this process, is, so what? What's the big deal? What's the importance of all this? Why is this relevant? And... I really just came to the conclusion it comes down to this one short, simple phrase and I want to turn to the book of Ephesians and that simple phrase is in Christ. Because it's one thing to see Jesus and to understand his might and majesty and glory and his power and authority but I think what really hits it home is when you start to understand that as a believer in Christ you are actually placed in Christ. And I don't know of any better letter that I can think of than the the book of Ephesians to kind of drive this point home a bit. So if you've got your Bibles there and you open up to chapter 1, I'm just going to read out a couple of scriptures. I want you to see it and hear it for yourself. Chapter 1, verse 3, he begins... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the word, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Now in the Greek it's a bit difficult because they don't have an encompassing word for sons and daughters, but essentially what that's saying is you become a child of God It's sons and daughters. You become connected. God is your Father. He is your Son. And this is by His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. If you go down a little further and you read from verse 13, He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. when you open your heart to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that descended from the heavens and came upon Jesus, commissioned Him for His mission, and and that same Spirit with which He went, doing signs and wonders, delivering people, healing people, multiplying food, that same Spirit has been poured out on all those who believe. And it's a seal, it's a promise, it's a guarantee. A guarantee against what? against death. That your life is guaranteed, it's not subject any longer to sin and death, but the Holy Spirit has come and witnesses to you that God has purchased you with a price, that he has adopted you as his own, that he is taking you into glory, and that heaven is your home. Just think of what he says further on about this Christ whom we worship, it says that the same power that is toward us believe is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's astonishing in itself, but just hear the parallel that happens, a few verses down, when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but skipping down to verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I'm just wondering who ever thought where you're sitting today. Can you see? Can you see the supreme lordship of Christ and the authority and power in Him over all dominions, all authorities and powers, and yet there's this amazing, mysterious, miraculous, incomprehensible reality that you are seated in Christ in the heavenly places above all authority, power, rule, and dominion. And so He gives you His Spirit to bring about His kingdom from heaven onto earth. This is why you need to see him. I don't think our problem is actually sometimes that we haven't heard enough. And I know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I'm convinced actually our problem is we don't see him. You know, Mark saw it. He declared Jesus as Lord in his gospels. And then the people saw his lordship, (coughs) his power, his authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is crucified and people think it's all over and no, God raises him from the dead and declares that Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus has a vision. He sees the glory of the Lord and he turns his life around. They saw it. They saw it and it changed their lives. I was 27 and a half. I don't believe. I'm in a church... And suddenly I see him and my life has changed radically forever. Not because I heard, but because I saw. I saw the Lord. And that was it. I didn't have to wonder what to do. I just knew I had to seek him. You know, I find it interesting. There are many people who were seeking the kingdom. This is a phrase that Dave picked up from somewhere. He's mentioned it before. That the world is seeking a kingdom without a king. I actually think that there are many Christians who seek a kingdom without the king. They want the things of kingdom, the subject of kingdom, but they don't want to know the Lord himself. I plead with you. If you want to know the Lord, if you want the things of the kingdom, open your heart to see him. Ask him. Ask him to open the eyes of your heart. Whatever you're struggling with, what is it? Let him show you what it means for him to be Lord in that place, for you, in your life, right now. Stop hearing about it and ask Him that you could see.